You have a mic? There's two of them. If you try to talk directly into it, um, yeah. No, no, point the tip toward your mouth, yeah. Um, when one is in this state of choiceless awareness and um, can see a lot of things sort of coming and going, if you will, and not feeling any particular desire to do anything with them, where does intention come in? I mean, I've, I've myself experienced where, oh, I sense there's, my back is hurting, so I could shift a little bit, or not. And it's as if I can see intention arising in the field of awareness, and sometimes there's really nothing that wants to do anything about it. It's as if there's a letting it just hurt. And then other times it's not the case. It wants to do something. It, it says like, oh, you should move because, you know, that if you don't, then in ten minutes it's really going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so what I guess I'm asking is I see intention arising in that field as well as the other objects that can show up, all the dreams and fantasies and the, uh, and the memories. And I see it all coming and going. But my involvement with it sometimes feels very distant, like I'm, I'm just sort of watching the play unfold and I don't know what to do with it sometimes. I just feel kind of like, okay, that's fine. So where, what do I do? <laughs> well, we, I should maybe point out that the phrase choiceless awareness is a Krishnamurtiism. It's not actually a Buddhist um, term. It's not in the Theravada texts. Uh, because just as you described, choice is as empty as a thought or a sound or a feeling. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it just feels like there's an I who's doing something, but actually there, there is an, an intention arises, a, you know, it relates to a memory, it attaches to a, a, you know, a bank of possibilities that, that kind of trickle through, and then one of them lights up and then a decision arises and then an action follows or doesn't. You know, there's no person involved in that. Uh, it's all, all of those different elements of that whole process are as empty as any other. So, one of the um, things actually that, that I was struck when, when uh, Joe was making his presentation this morning about spontaneity, or maybe it was during the afternoon, I forget, but about... Um, uh, in how, what, what a role uh, spontaneity has in, in Dharma practice when following the, the uh, or attuning the heart attuning itself to, to Dharma is there's a spontaneity and so it, from the outside it, it can look as though I'm choosing to move, I'm choosing to sit still I'm choosing to speak, I'm choosing to remain silent but from inside there can be no person doing any choosing at all as, uh, the, the, those uh, responses are, are, are occurring naturally according to you know, the time, the place, the situation. And so oftentimes when people are hunting for the right thing for me to do, whether it's, you know, how do I handle my sitting meditation or how do I handle my life, you know, my marriage, my job, my whatever. You know. Uh, you know, I, can, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of times I've said, there's no right thing to do. There's no sort of golden book or the, you know, the Akashic record where 
you know, the right thing for Cindy to do is inscribed and she just has to figure out what it is. You know, like often you think of it like a, like a, a wire that's woven you know, in, a, in a tangled pattern underneath the floor and you've got your metal detector. Where does the wire go? So I follow the track that tells me this is the right thing. There is no fixed place, no fixed direction. Because in any one moment, you know, what the right thing to do is now, is completely wrong now. Or exactly the same. <laughs> or of a whole different order altogether. You know, you, it's not predictable and it's not fixed. So that's why when you're around great uh, meditation masters, they're generally utterly unpredictable and inconsistent which makes the, the rationalists furious <laughs> because well, you're, you're contradicting yourself I mean like five minutes ago you said this and now you're saying that like you can't I mean, what, which is the right thing is it this or that yes <laughs> <laughs> and so that um, it's not, and it's also important to recognize if that's genuine it's not being nebulous it's, it's reality at play. You know, so that's the fact of it. And so that the, with developing this whole quality of, of a genuine awareness, a genuine unbiasedness, uh, an attunement to the present moment, then it's Dharma aware of its own nature. And then sometimes it's going to manifest as, ooh, time to move, time to move the right leg. And sometimes it's going to ma- manifest as, don't touch anything <laughs> and, it, and it mutates all the time and so that it's uh, and so it's in, that's why that element of honesty or sincerity is important because recognize the, the difference between that and just following the path of least resistance because of you know, conditioned preferences and fears aversions desires is, they can look very like each other but it's like a, with a, a deeper and deeper attunement. And also, the, the, both yourself and the, the other people were asking earlier in the day, how do these principles, how do we apply these principles in everyday life? Well, in a way, that when, when you, you, you begin to master these qualities and realize these qualities on the cushion or you know, on the walking meditation path, then we begin to see how that transfers into this conversation. Your life on the freeway handling your, your children or your siblings or your, your parents or your co-workers over the phone or how do you talk to your doctor your patients <laughs> it's all there in, in that kind of um, this basic quality of, of trusting the attunement the present and letting your intuition of what's right arise and then seeing the results of what you do It also seemed that, that you were speaking to uh, <clears throat> a question which I find re- really interesting, and that um, has, has two parts. One is our level of engagement with our practice, the intimacy of our practice, the genuineness of our practice. And also the service to which our practice is being put 
in any given moment. This is a little bit like intention and motivation, but a little, little bit of a wrinkle on it. Uh, I find it's not unusual for people who are very genuine, very invested in the practice to go through sort of dry patches, like you were describing, where you're, you're observing all right, but it's just kind of a bit at a distance and there may not be a sense of felt engagement with, with the practice. It's just kind of a dry patch. Um, no, no, no. I, I'm saying I'm not saying that that's what's going on for you, but um, but there are other times, and 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 I don't know. Um, well, maybe I should ask just a little bit more about your experience before I go and completely put my foot in my mouth. Go. It's a richness. It's as if I can see things coming and going. And I am the lover, and I'm also the beloved. I'm sorry, could you? <laughs> it's a richness. Yeah. It's, um, I can stand apart from it if I want to, but I also see it as that old thing. I'm, I'm the beloved, and the beloved is me. Oh. Even in the feelings and sadness and happiness and all of it. So it's a dance, if right. you want to say, that right. I watch unfold. And it's... Do I decide to move in this direction or that direction? Where do I go with this? Mm. And maybe I'm asking about confusion. I don't know. But it, it's, it's an engagement. It's not being uh-huh. apart from it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. Great. <coughs> Other comments or questions? I mean, we're talking a lot about practice and training. I just want to... We can also talk about other elements as well. Please, go ahead. There was something you said during your guided meditation that was really helpful to me because um, at a, a certain point, I don't remember where it was, but you said um, something like, notice the quality of energy, something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped me when you said, uh, um, now... Um, drop whatever it is that the idea that you're separate that the sounds outside are separate from from your own body Um, because when when you said that um, I kind of got lost and stuck and then I thought to myself okay so what's the quality of the energy and I realized I was trying too hard it was too much effort and that I just hadn't gotten to the point where I understood that instruction or that guidance and um so I think I could have gotten lost in trying too hard to understand, you know, what it was like to not have that distinction between outer and inner. Um, but when I checked into the energy, I realized it was, it was too, too, um, too striving, too, um, not really being present. And then I realized it's okay if I don't understand what that's like. Uh, you know, it's at some point it will probably become apparent, but right now it's right now it's just a guidance that I'm hearing. Eventually, maybe it'll become clear to me. So I like that. I I think I'd like to check in with myself about the quality <laughs> part because I can get lost sometimes trying to do the right thing or trying to follow an instruction or trying to reach some ideal. And um, if I can just notice that I'm trying too hard, that, that helps me a lot. 
Yes. Thanks. This morning you mentioned a, a word uh, location after you talk about you talk about uh, letting the self go. Then you immediately talk about location like a hearness, mm-hmm. and then you, said you also let, need to let that go. Um, that uh, was fresh to me. I was just curious if you could speak more about it. <laughs> um, well, there's, in a way, there's not a lot more to say about that. Um, part of the whole process of letting go, uh, the, in a way, the first piece of it is actually discerning what it is that's being clung to in the first place. So, getting familiar with that feeling of hereness. So, um, Sometimes it's useful to do a practice of conscious clinging to, you know, to, to get really uh, distinct as to what it is the mind is grabbing onto. And so, uh, so sometimes that, uh, say in the meditation, you can, you can do that by using the, the power of, of reflection or you know, using conceptual thought to, to arouse particular quality. So just saying to yourself, here, this is here. It's all happening here. Just to yourself. This is all happening here. And then what happens is, is very interesting because what you're doing is, when, when you do that with a, on a basis of clarity and the mind reasonably steady, then you're catalyzing the wisdom function that says here what the hell does that mean? Uh, Earlier today someone was talking to me about a a similar practice that that I often advise about meditating on your own name which is a good way and maybe we'll we'll do some of that with the meditation period but sometimes one of the most helpful ways of, of developing a, the insight into not, into not self is just to bring your own name to mind. Again, you, you, you like developing a quality of focus and steadiness, and then with no no kind of commentary, just think your own name. Uh, what's your name? Kai, Kai. So if you just bring that to mind, say Kai. Kai. Then very quickly, I mean, probably you even feel it now. It's like, oh, that's a bit strange. And then you just like, uh, then just dropping that name into the space of the mind. Kai. And then some again, it triggers that wisdom quality that says, "What on earth is that?" Right. Um, so that, that what you're doing with that, that uh, investigation of, of bringing up the word here is that you're, you're looking at the assumptions that are made moment by moment that life happens here. And, that, and so you're triggering that insight that says, oh, that's just a fabricated quality. That isn't actually something real or solid at all. Oh, 
And, that, and it's the, oh, that's what you're aiming at. <laughs> so I thought um, when I had done with the letting go of the self, and then when you mentioned letting go of this here, being here, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the curiosity was, uh, is, is it the same thing? It sounded like it's the it's same. It's similar, yeah. And uh, so I was just wondering if that letting go of this being here or the location uh, is, is sat, more subtle <laughs> than the letting go of the self. But uh, now you answered the question. That's what I, at the lunch, uh, you know, reflected. I thought this probably was the same thing, just different <laughs> way of uh, teaching about mm-hmm. this uh, letting go of the self. Well, there's different, different uh, conditioning is different, different people, different part, different relatively independent subtotalities. <laughs> it works differently. So for some people, the quality of time is the most dominant uh, conditioning factor, that, so that like, nowness is, is very, very solid. And maybe the, the feeling of self, that's more easily seen through, but the, the quality of time is very real. Others, uh, you know, the, the quality of, of location is more, is more real and more, you know, more subtly woven in and unquestioned. So, but those three are, are like the, the real um, sort of skeleton, the, the, the basic structure of, uh, of our, uh, our separate, kind of our individuality is built on t- uh, time, self, and location. Those three are the uh, as far as I can tell, the kind of the main bones of the of the uh, separate, the, you know, the, the the kind of dualistic conditioning, and that the more that those three are, are seen through with wisdom, then the more radical the, is the and complete is the quality of, of freedom that comes from that. But each in, each individual, the conditioning is different, and and so that. For some people, time is, is, is a totally yeah, unreal structure and has ne- never been a solid thing for them anyway. Uh, others are very different. You know, so that you, you have to work with your own conditioning and the, your own character and how, how things work. But it's, it's generally the interplay of those three and the, so that the different practices aim at the feeling of selfhood, the feeling of time and the feeling of place. And uh, whatever it takes to, to recognize the fundamental insubstantiality of those is, is uh, they all basically lead to the same, uh, the, the Dhamma that's realized through, through the, uh, through the um, penetration of those or the, the, the releasing of those structures is the same. I guess, I guess my question would be, um, I happen to like your name because I, I know what it means. One of the meanings is sea or ocean. Is that right? And uh, I wonder if it's possible to play with names, even enjoy names, without clinging to names, without clinging to name and form. Uh, because I think it can go in the other direction. You know, people who, for example, are not able to use the word I, or they're not able to use the word mine. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing a, a mother 
on Maui many, many moons ago whose, uh, whose child was playing with uh, another child and, um, and they were having a bit of a tussle over the, the sand pail. And I think they were three or four years old and, and, and her daughter was saying, mine, and the other one was saying, mine. And she said, no, it's not yours, it's everybody's. And I kind of cringed, you know, because this, for this girl, you know, developing mine and, and struggling with that, I think, was an important thing to be doing, actually, to, to get in there and then to talk about it, but to say, no, it's not yours. Uh, again, maybe it's the developmentalist in me who thinks that uh, that's a good capacity to have, to be able to play with mine, to play with I, and to play with our names and the qualities of our names. Um, maybe there'll be springboards to your realizing the sea of your Buddha nature, you know. Um, actually, Kai is part of my Dharma name, too. <laughs> um, it's uh, one of my names is Seikai or True C. So, um, uh, w- what is the True C? <laughs> Where is the True C? How does it manifest? Um, I, I, I kind of think you, you, you'll agree with this, uh, but, but but maybe not. Uh, but, but I'm just curious because it seems to me that a fluid and flexible and playful use of name and form. Not just conventional, but, but, but playful, but not being attached to it, is not a cause of suffering. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, you have yeah. to. I mean, if, if, a, uh, if there was the view that this convention was getting in the way of liberation, then it's a, it's a very weird understanding of liberation. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the true. That's why. I like to think of the Buddha touching the earth as the ultimate symbol of, of liberation because you know, his, in, his internal experience of the enlightenment was of total freedom and, and non-attachment. But Mara was still kind of... And the, and the armies of Mara was all gathered, they were all gathered around. And, uh, and so that it was only when the, the Buddha touched the earth and brought the earth goddess to witness, his mother, to say, you know, this is my true son and he has done everything needed to develop all of the perfections to completeness mm-hmm. um, you, know, you are defeated Mara then she washes Mara and the armies away with this flood that she produces from her hair so the Buddha then even though his internal state is one of t- total liberation he is not suffering at all it's only when he, he sort of reaches out from that subjective liberation and says how could, there, how could the physical world and the fact that I have parents and a body and a need to breathe and eat, how could that obstruct liberation? There's no, there's no um, need to be concerned that any material form, any sense object, could occlude this quality of freedom in any way whatsoever. There's no, uh, and so that there's no need to push the material or the conventional away mm. or devalue it. Mm. So please come in. Right. So it's that utter unobstructedness and total openness to the conventional and the, you know, playing with it, being ready to work with it and, and be at ease with it because the freedom is so totally inviolable. Therefore, sure, come in, take over. Right. Because there's nothing that can be, nothing could possibly be, nothing that's real could possibly be harmed or corrupted or damaged or lost on account of those qualities. And so there's right. a, 
that total acceptance mm -hmm. gives rise to a, a, an utter ease with the material world. Mm. So that's why one of the qualities of the Buddha is vijja charana sampano, perfect in knowledge and conduct. Mm. So that it's not just the knowledge uh, and the transcendent realization, but it's the, the being in the world is also totally balanced and perfected. Mm. So that if you've got a, 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 that kind of understanding, then sure, then the, the names and forms and structures are, are people are you're, you're totally at ease with that. If, you, if there's still an attachment to this thing is going to obstruct or is going to irritate my freedom, then there's no real freedom there. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's biased. And, there's a, and it's, um, uh, if it can be threatened by anything, then it's still uh, conditioned and, and formed. It's not the, the, the Dhamma really being aware of its own nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's me with some attainment that this can make a, make a mess. Yeah, right. so you're not coming into my place, thank you very much. Right, right, right. Does that make sense? Yes. There's a uh, there's a couplet uh, toward the end which uh, is oh. sort of a, a Zen teaching on the uh, on Nirvana, uh, which I think is interesting, which is a comes at it from a slightly different angle. Um, this is also from Hakuin Zenji, Song of Zazen. Uh, the, the last verse is, How boundless and free is the sky of samadhi. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here, before our eyes. This very place, apropos of place, this very place is the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. I wonder how that... Um, I'm just curious, for, 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 from a sort of comparative point of view, how, how you hear that. Sounds right on to me. Sounds right on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other comments or questions? Maybe we could have a... Oh, sorry, Michael, yeah. Mike, Mike for Mike. This is... I guess this would fit under the uh, subject of non-duality and duality between, uh, say, Theravada and Zen. I've often heard it said in Zen that... Uh, Nirvana is samsara, and samsara is nirvana. And um, in Theravada, I haven't heard anything along those lines, although it could be implied. <laughs> and uh, Ajahn Amaro, what you just said about the Buddha's enlightenment sounded something close to that. Mm -hmm. Come on in. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering, if, is, there any, is there any real uh, difference in perspective between the two? traditions um, on that on that uh, on that issue well one, one interesting way that Ajahn Chah used to describe it he said samsara and nirvana are like the front and the back of the, of the same hand yeah, they're both known by the same mind uh, it's not something you, would, you find in, in the Pali canon 
that was one his way of talking about it was that they, they, nirvana and samsara happen in the same place and so that um, that the uh, that non-distinction uh, is not saying that they are the same thing because you know you're making a distinction you know, like say left is left is left and right is right but or you're saying the front of the hand is not the same as the back of the hand but it's the same hand so there's a, there's a, a quality of, of of unity but there's also a distinction that's there and, and you know, in, in a way that's been a central theme of the day is that um, that playing of between the, how things can be diverse or dual and yet recognizing a, uh, uh, a unifying principle that, that's there and a, and a transcendent principle. So that, that, and I found that extremely helpful way of, of, of considering it. That, yeah, that the point is that the awareness that knows samsara is the same as the awareness that knows nibbana. Yeah, that the, and that is actually beyond any kind of naming. And that these are conventional uh, terms or, or just the, the, the forms of language that help designate you know, different patterns of experience so that, that, that the quality of, of genuine freedom can be realized. Hmm. Uh, I'm just loving this dialogue, by the way. Um, And I think there probably are some differences of emphasis and differences in terms of how one would work with students around this. Um, uh, Both both schools uh, probably just privilege different things uh, a little bit differently. I think that wonderful uh, teaching of Ajahn Chah is, um, and I think both from Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Sumedho, I get this feeling Ajahn Chah in his spirit was very much like some of the old Zen masters. Um, you know, some of the content might have been different, but the, you get in front of this guy and you better be ready to, ready to do some work. Um, and I think there are probably still some differences. I, I think you're on to something, actually. Um, uh, and, and I would not want to cast them as invidious differences or differences of uh, right or wrong or better or worse in, in, in any way. But, but I think uh, it, it, it probably is fair to say that it's a distinctively uh, a Zen uh, contribution to see the the garbage as the jewel. As the jewel. Not just as fodder to practice or as something that we can let in without any fear because we're just not identified or attached to it. Uh, And I think you see some of this in Tibetan practice as well in the tantric, you know, Vajrayana practices. Uh, It gets kind of, gets a little dicey, a little sketchy at times. But um, how you use... uh, uh, illness uh, as medicine. You know, I think that the tantric practice has certainly developed this a lot more than Zen. But um, uh, you know, the Zen worthy would say, "Please uh, show me something that's not medicine." 
Show me something that's not medicine. Um, and not just in the training perspective, that's to say that this can be used as, again, a, 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 an opportunity to cultivate certain spiritual qualities. But uh, I, I think the, the, Zen, the, liberato- the emancipatory pivot in Zen, if we could put it into words, which I'm just loath to do, I probably should have had my mouth washed out with soap many times today. Um, but um, nonetheless, this is fun to talk about, realizing that we're not confusing the blueprint with the, with the land. <laughs> We've got to walk the territory. Um, that the emancipatory pivot is a little bit different than the Theravadan. It's just, it seems to me, that in, in Zen, it's realizing that there was nothing missing from the beginning. That just as I walk, just as I bend, just as I suffer, that's it. It's the whole universe. There's nothing missing. There never was anything missing. So I can practice from now till kingdom come to refine my potential and my qualities. But that's not going to get me anywhere near that essential perspective. That right now, in the midst of what I have mistakenly thought of as garbage, is this great jewel. And I can come to life when I realize that. And that misperception drops. So, um, uh, I I think there may be, and Ajahn Amar, you you may differ, there there may be a slight slight difference in this. And again... um, and it may reflect a little bit of a difference in the epistemology of, of, of suffering and the, and, the, and, and the quality of liberation. I, I don't think it's fundamental, but it's a little bit of a family difference, I think. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say there's a difference. Yeah. Um, I think it's... It, the, and the, and the, but it's a difference that has its blessings and its curses. And how I can tell about the because, curses. Yeah, on the, on the, the sort yeah. of the curse side, what you have is this. Um, yeah, samsara is is nirvana. No, samsara is nirvana. So then someone takes that and then says, "Okay, so me um, seducing my students yeah. is the activity of the Buddha, or me giving my students AIDS is the act- activity of the Buddha. It's just yeah. it's just sick Buddha." You know, sleeping with, with, with making other sick Buddhas. Fine. Theravadan would say, not fine. No. <laughs> not fine. Unwholesome. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. Not good. Um, and so that, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, so that would be a curse, the curse side of it. And, and it also reminded me of a conversation some years back in the, uh, first conference we had with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala mm-hmm. when uh, uh, someone who was a, a Zen teacher um, had very, very negative things to say about his own master. He just received Dharma transmission. It was the most peculiar situation. He just received Dharma transmission from his teacher who he referred to um, in... Uh, unglamorous would be a um, generous term. <laughs> Um, and he used the term narcissistic psychopath to refer to his own teacher. He said his insight is unshakable and pure, but his conduct is, is, is dreadful. 
is uh, is uh, destructive. And uh, but he just received dharma transmission, quote unquote, from this narcissistic psychopath, which he held in high regard. <laughs> and the Dalai Lama was going. Like, and so, uh, so, so um, and the fellow was asking a genuine question, well, how do I work with this? Because, you know, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever about the inside of my teacher, but uh, psychologically he's a total mess and, and a disaster. He's a narcissistic psychopath. And, uh, and he wasn't using the words lightly. You know, and this teacher does have a really terrible reputation in, in many circles. And so... Um, his holiness was doing a lot of huddling with his translator. <laughs> Am I getting this? You know, and his, his English is pretty good. But, and, he, and then he said, I'm sorry, but what you think of as his accomplishment, in, if he behaves in the ways that you're describing, it, it's impossible that he could have any real insight. Really? I mean, it, it can't be. I think, you know, and he said, very respectfully, sir, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I, I think that your teacher is not quite as accomplished as you would say. <laughs> it was very sweet. It was quite touching. But it was completely bewildering to him. And so, in a way, that's the kind of the downside of the samsara is nirvana Absolutely. equation. It's like someone can say, you know, I am the Roshi, I am the, I am the, the, the kind of... Uh, the Guru, the, the Rinpoche, and, or the Ajahn. <laughs> Less common with the Ajahns, but can, can happen. And so everything I do is pure, because I'm enlightened. It's what in Christianity is called the antinomian heresy. If you do something in the name of Christ, it's thereby, thereby purified. It's called the antinomian uh, heresy. And so early on in Christian history, the antinomians kind of... <laughs> They got labeled as, this is, a, this is a heresy. But they had that same belief. If you do something in the name of Christ, it is intrinsically a pure act. So, not to get too political, the government of this fair nation is <laughs> somewhat prone to, if it's done in the name of the United States, it's there by a pure act. Uh, so, you know, if you tell some of the prisoners in Abu Ghraib uh, or in Guantanamo Bay that this is, uh, Sangsara is Nirvana, they'll say, well, thank you very much, but... I'd like a little bit more distinction. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, the, the downside is that then is that it can get sort of too, you know, it can get dualistic. Is that um, keeping the precepts and being kind and generous is pure, uh, you know, intrinsically pure, and you know, and uh, lying to somebody or getting getting drunk or um, uh, you know, cheating on your spouse is uh, is in, intrinsically impure. Um, rather than just skillful and unskillful. Now, that's good, that's bad. And so it's like the like goodness becoming an absolute good and the badness being an absolute bad. Whereas when the Buddha uses the term skillful and unskillful, kusala and akusala, in a very distinct way. You know. He says it's, you know, that unskillful action leads to painful results. If you cheat on your spouse, you have to keep the secret. You're worried you're going to be found out. You have to deal with the arguments. You have to deal with the heartbreak. You have to, to uh, armor your heart to defend your own choices. It's a miserable state to, to be in. There's a painful result. And even if you are, you can kind of blast your way through and convince yourself that it's all okay and fine and good, you still have to deal with the static that you get from outside on account of that. And so uh, there's a painful result. 
that's all. It's not evil. It's not intrinsically wrong. And if you if you look at the teachings of the of the, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha and, and say the forest Ajans, it's like well, like in Ajahn Man's uh, kind of enlightenment verses, the 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 um, verses of liberation from the five khandhas. He said, "Wanting good without stop, uh, this is a great disease of the heart." Yeah, good. You know, good and bad uh, uh, are like um, foods that inflame a high fever. Yeah, you know, making judgments, good and bad. You know, like these are foods that you know are already. You've already got a fever, and eating these hot foods are only going to make it worse. Mm. So, and Ajahn Chah similarly would. He's if you if you. Uh, I mean, you were there during the winter retreat at Abhayagiri. I mean, how many times is Ajahn Chah talking about don't attach to goodness, you know, goodness and badness? You know. They're just two ends of the same snake. You know, you grab the snake, you grab goodness, you get, you get bitten. You grab badness, you get bitten. So that that kind of uh, the downside of uh, of the um, samsara is one thing, nirvana is, is another. Is that concretizing good and bad? This is good and pure. That's bad and wrong. And so that you know, it's. It, uh, like any kind of skillful means, those, those terms or these methodologies, they have their own benefits and blessings. So that in Theravada, the, you know, the benefit is precepts means precepts. <laughs> like it means, when it says, I, I refrain from taking life, it means I don't take life. <laughs> That's what it means. It's not a symbolic not taking of life or I will refrain from drinking, you know, taking drugs and alcohol. It's not like I will refrain from the wine of delusion. It's no, no. Refrain from the wine. Period. <laughs> That's what it means. It doesn't mean the wine of delusion. It means wine. Beer, whiskey, the whole thing. That's what it means. You know, it's very simple, straightforward. So that brings its own blessings. But, you know, then if you attach to that and say, no, therefore, any passage of alcohol past the lips is, a, is, is intrinsically evil, then you've, you've grasped it and you've created another cause of suffering. So that it's... You know, any kind of Buddhist practice really involves that, like a skillful use of the, the means, like picking up the way you pick up the tools, the language, the practices, and the, the alertness to making this is absolutely good and right. Like, any kind of meditation technique, like mindfulness of breathing. Okay, just follow my breath for as long as it takes. And then, yeah. And then, you know, you just become like a, uh, you know, like a, a machine in the hospital that follows the breath. You know? <laughs> they can do it very accurately, day after day. They never even sleep. It is very mechanical. Yeah. And you can become a great breath watcher, but you're no closer to enlightenment. So it's always taking the technique, the method, the language, and, and seeing this is just a skillful means. This is just an expression. What's being done with it? How's it being handled? What are the assumptions that come from it? And I'd like to just add, at the service of what? At the service of self-aggrandizement, at the service of liberation, at the service of regulating my emotions. Uh, sometimes it's hard to really tune into this question. We're, we're doing a practice, but 
but at the service of what? And I think it ties into our motivation, ties mm -hmm. into our intention. But it's not self-evident always what our intention is in any given moment. And oftentimes I think it's helpful to have a kind of a mirror. As to say, it's helpful to have a teacher, or it's helpful to have a, a partner, or it's helpful to have a friend who can sometimes reflect back an element of your intention that you may not be aware of in terms of what use you're putting this particular practice to or how you're really, what's the essential energetic quality, what's the essential spiritual quality being animating, being mobilized, being generated in that moment. So sometimes our capacity for compartmentalization, dissociation and, and self-deception are so strong that, that we may think uh, that uh, I, I'm really, it's very quite beneficent. This feels good, looks good, everything's good. may not be good. So I think one of the great gifts of, of the Theravadan to, to me has been uh, this idea of, of cause and effect and the impacts of cause and effect that our, that our thinking has, that our perception has, how we connect the dots, how we construe things. Um, because it's not something we're really raised with in Zen very much. And for me, it's certainly very much a part of my practice. Uh, in, in, in my tradition, you know, uh, enlightenment was very much valued. The experience of enlightenment, the, uh, the expression of enlightenment, the sharing of that expression. But how that prajna insight element dovetailed with shila or precepts or more fundamentally awakened behavior it wasn't self-evident so this is one of the blessings for me of the, of the classical practices the classical outlook Gil Fransdahl has just done a nice translation of the, the Dhammapada uh, but uh, part of me likes uh, an earlier translation. I don't know where it comes from. The, one, one of the lines there is, we are what we think, having become what we thought. I don't know what translation that comes from, but that, that really strikes me. I mean, it sort of summarizes for me what you've been saying. Um, so insight detached from, from conduct can be deleterious to your health and other people's health. And conduct detached from insight uh, can be beneficent, but it can also be just kind of rote. You know, it can be kind of fundamental. So this is our ideal, to have them inform one another, energize one another, potentiate one another. And I think it's a beautiful ideal. And uh, it doesn't always happen with, without some real practice. And sometimes with, without practices that are a little bit different than the ones we were brought up with. Maybe it's about uh, 4.30. And maybe, do we want to have a little bit of a break before the last sitting? Or just have a... I think if we just uh, maybe... I think there's been plenty of words today. So uh, you can... I think we can all just sit quietly for uh, 20 minutes or so and then conduct your own meditation according to your uh, intuitive wisdom.
today is <coughs> been a rich day, and uh, even though having made the caveat of uh, not wanting to be the generator of a blizzard of verbiage, <laughs> uh, I hope hopefully today has been a uh, useful verbiage from Venerable uh, uh, Roshi and myself and. Uh, the, um, the different uh, themes that we've explored and, and all of you have, uh, have shared and uh, we've discussed together and looked at. Uh, hopefully, there is um, ways that this is helping to has helped to transform our our, our understanding, transformed our hearts, and it's, uh, something that qualities that we can that we'll take away from this place. Yeah, conventionally speaking. <laughs> And that uh, you know, the the more that we practice dhamma, the more we realise that uh, there are, that uh, that's the place we never really leave. And that uh, living in the world of dhamma, this is what we are, where we are, uh, and and that um, the deeper that realisation is for us, then the, the uh, the profounder the quality of our own happiness and also the profounder the quality of you know, the gift that we offer to the uh, the world and all those that uh, we encounter that we enter the marketplace with a big bag <laughs> a fat sack of uh, goodies to hand out to the uh, those that we encounter in the in the marketplace um, and so uh, my hope is that uh, this has been a fruitful day for, for people and that uh, please, whatever has been useful, uh, take it and keep it with you and that which has not been useful, just uh, leave aside. It's been a pleasure uh, being with you all today. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Ajahn Amro. Um, I think what we give most of all to one another is, is our presence. And uh, it can't be quantified, can't be measured, but uh, somehow we know it. We feel it with one another. Uh, so thank you for your good questions and for your own presence. And um, I'd like to dedicate whatever fruits do unfold from, from this day, whatever seeds have been planted in all of us that might sprout um, to the uh, benefit of all beings. <laughs>